Good morning. If you would, if you have your Bible with you, um, would you turn with me to Genesis 46? Genesis 46. Genesis 46, verse 31, to be exact, uh, is where we're going. It's going to be hard to preach from Genesis 46 if I'm in Exodus. So, there we go. It is. Now I'm there. All right. <clears throat> let's, let's pray. Father, we love you. We, we very, very much thank you, Lord God, that we have your word in our hands, on our laps, Father, this morning that you have so graciously in such a just amazing way, Father, preserved your holy, inerrant word. Father, it, it just, it is astounding with this world that we live in right now searching for answers and, Father, looking for some kind of grid to push thinking through and what is truth. Father, we have the revelation of the living God before us this morning. And Lord, I thank you so much that in this country in particular, we have that freedom. We get to take these books home. We get to pour over your word freely as much as we'd like. Thank you, Father. Thank you so very, very much. And I pray as we continue on chipping away in our study of Genesis, Father, this brick and this wall we're building, Lord, would encourage the saints. Refresh them, Lord. I have no doubt that there are struggles, broken hearts, trials in our midst. And so, my precious Lord, you are the great physician, and I pray that you would use the, the balm of your word to mend and care for your people. Thank you, Father, so much for your tender love for us as yours. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> One of the most natural impulses in the world is revenge. One of the most natural impulses in the world is to uh, get revenge. You've probably heard people say, I don't get mad. I get even. Um, just the fact that you just said that shows this is somewhat prevalent in our, in our culture, but I would argue not just our culture, this is prevalent in humans. Somebody slaps you across the face, natural response, you're getting it back from me. Or worse, it is so the norm, you deal out what you've been dealt. And one of the, I would say, large pillars of the study of Joseph, there's many large pillars of the study of Joseph you can, um, you can kind of zoom in on and zone in on and focus on. One of those that I want us to think very carefully about throughout this entire study, this sermon this morning, is... Joseph never sought sweet, quote-unquote, revenge on his brothers. 
when Joseph had absolute opportunity to obliterate them, he didn't. But here's where it freshly um, is pressed in my mind. What is freshly pressed in my mind is that it wasn't simply that he said, you know what, you guys were jerks, I'm out, but I'm not going to kill you and I'm not going to see any harm done to you. But no, go away. He didn't do that. He lavishly pours his love out on his brothers and on his father and on their children. We'll go to this further in more detail as we walk through this sermon, but I want you just to think carefully about the the profound opportunity where Joseph could have seen it as, finally, finally I get my revenge. These guys have been asking for it for years, and now finally God has put my enemies in my hands to do them harm. Look at 46.31. Now, I'll just remind you, if you look up at um, verse 28 of 46... Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph harnessed his chariot and and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now, now I can die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. So where we left off last week was a reunion, one of the the most emotionally charged reunions recorded in Scripture, where the son has now reunited with the father. The reason this reunion is so uh, powerful is because in Jacob's mind, it wasn't merely Joseph left home. In Joseph's mind, his son had passed. He lost his son. His son was dead. So... In a very real way, on an emotional level, Jacob is receiving his boy back from the dead. Not just back from the excursion. But in Joseph's mind, I'm receiving my son back from the dead. And so the emotions ran wild, the tears were flowing, and in that sweet emotional moment, father and son embraced, and God did it all by his great grace. And what is fascinating to me is we go from verse 30 to verse 31 with such a shift in how uh, the story is going to go now. And I don't mean that negatively. I just mean to go from such a strong emotional moment to such a logistical um, setting up for the whole family, which is kind of normal, right? You go visit your relatives and they meet you at the door and they haven't seen you for years. Oh man, you're here, you're here. I haven't seen you since the wedding. Come on in. And they give you a great big hug. And then the next thing is, let me show you your room. They want to show you, this is where you're going to be living. This, here's the bathroom over here. I'm going to set this up for you. Yes, the emotion is there. The reunion is there. It's fantastic. But let me show you where you're going to be staying. The exact same thing happens here. Joseph has reunited with his father. He's showing love to his father, love to his brothers. But now there's 70 of them, and they've all come over, and they brought all their possessions with them. We need to figure out where we're going to put you. So look at 31. 
And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it will be when when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? Then you shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth. And until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Joseph shows excellent diplomacy in this this storyline. I do not think this is him simply being manipulative so much as he wants to carefully arrange this so that way... Joseph is happy, Pharaoh is happy, Jacob is happy, the rest of the children are happy, and the rest of the grandchildren are happy, and that this works well. Remember, guys, for years now, Pharaoh, or Joseph has been a man with great responsibility, great authority, and he has learned how to manage. Um, you had all those years of, of plenty, what to do with the plenty, and now they're in the famine at this time. Joseph is a man who's a good leader. Joseph is a man who is wise. Joseph is a man who knows what to do in bringing this together. And so he's preparing his brothers for how they're going to appear before Pharaoh. What's the desired outcome? The desired outcome is pretty simple from the text. I want you to be able to settle in the land of Goshen. I want you to be shepherds and perhaps shepherds for your flocks as well as shepherds in Egypt. So Joseph is planting the thought of his family being shepherds in Goshen. Joseph is acting as a liaison between the king and his brothers. Remember this, you guys, and don't forget this piece to the story because it's one of those links in the chain. Joseph is a highly favored individual. He's highly favored from Pharaoh at the time. He's highly favored from Pharaoh's servants at the time. And he's highly favored from his own family now at this point. The boys have been on thin ice since they found out it was Joseph. Jacob is ecstatic that he's now in the presence of his his boy. And so there is one individual who could work as a great mediator between Pharaoh and his family. And that's Joseph. So Joseph, on behalf of his family, is going to be a liaison between them and Pharaoh. He gives his brothers their proper response to Pharaoh's questions. He's preparing them for the interview, if you will. And as he's preparing them for the interview, he knows eventually Pharaoh's going to ask you what your occupation is. And here's what you say. I want you to say, we're shepherds. Now, say it with me. We're shepherds. Good work. Okay. You guys are now ready to go stand before the highest in the land. Shepherds were apparently hated by the Egyptians. Now, here's what's interesting. No doubt, they had stock, they had livestock, they had animals, they had different animals that they had to care for. So commentators kind of uh, reduce that down to the thought that perhaps what they hated was foreign shepherds. That it wasn't merely shepherds that were an abomination, those that took care of livestock. That was a huge part of everybody's life at this time. Rather, it was when foreign shepherds came in, they had a hatred for them. If you recall, earlier, remember Joseph wouldn't eat with his brothers because it said that the Egyptians refused, they would not eat with the Hebrews. 
So there's some natural separation among the two people groups here anyways. And so looking at all that together, my best understanding is that the point is, you are foreign shepherds coming into the land. You are an abomination. You are hated by this people. But you got an ace in the hole, namely Joseph. Joseph's family being introduced as shepherds, this is another piece that's interesting, would have put Pharaoh's mind at ease. In what way? Regarding any possibilities of his family coming to take over with social or political ambitions. Remember, there's 70 of them coming in. Joseph has a high standing among the people. You can't tell me that Joseph wasn't a man rejoiced over when people are sitting there with full tummies. Because of this guy, because of his interpretation of the dreams, because of the authority put into him, everybody has enough food. I would imagine that Joseph has quite a bit of sway. Not only that, but Pharaoh himself had said, only second to me, Joseph, you have the entire leadership over this entire land. And so what if Joseph had 70 people come in? Is there potential that that could breed some uh, uh, rumors that they're up to something? And so this also would have put his mind at ease that my parents are not coming for social sway. They're not coming for political sway. They just want to take care of the critters. That's it. Now look at verse 1 of 47. Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and set them before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for, our ser for your servants' flocks, for the famine is heavy in the land of Canaan. So now please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Have your father and your brothers settle in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any excellent men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Do you, you see how beautiful this is aligning? Um, I want you to go, I want you to stand before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's going to ask you, what's your occupation? I want you to say that we're shepherds. Our fathers have been shepherds. We've been doing this our entire life. We're gifted in that. We also happen to be camping in the land of Goshen, which would be great if we could live there. Brings him before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks the exact question that Joseph knew he would ask. What is your occupation? We are shepherds. And do you see how immediately Pharaoh, he does not deliberate, he does not choke on his words, he immediately comes out and says, the very best of the land is yours. You have Egypt at your disposal. Now, you think about what Jacob has been through, what Jacob has seen, all that Jacob has gone through, what his brothers have gone through, and the life that they are accustomed to, if you will. Now they come before the highest authority in the land, and the highest authority in the land says, you get the key to the city. I give it all to you. Egypt is yours, at your disposal. Now, 
as you'll see, you guys, as you walk through the passage, the disposal is not necessarily given to Jacob and his brothers so much as given to Joseph to give to Jacob and his brothers. Remember, he's the liaison between the king and between his family. Joseph is the one who has been favored of God. The good hand of God has been on Joseph this entire time, and the good hand of God, the blessing of God on Joseph, is spilling over upon his family. I mean, you, you just, it's a bit overwhelming to stop and consider all that Pharaoh is allowing here, all that Pharaoh is saying he will give to them, all the different things that would have to come in place for this to happen. Joseph went to Pharaoh to prepare Pharaoh. Joseph went to his brothers to prepare his brothers. The good hand of God is in the midst of it all. The very best of Egypt can offer is given to Joseph for his family. Now pause, guys, and just think about this thought. Joseph is the one who could dictate immediately, way ahead of this time, and not offer a thing to his brothers. His brothers were the ones who took him, threw him in the pit, brought him back out of the pit, sold him into slavery, deceived dad, lied to him, told dad, well, they didn't say, they let dad stumble onto the thought that your son has been ravaged by lions and he's been destroyed. These brothers have been deceivers, liars, sinful men. They come to Joseph. Joseph has every opportunity to pour his wrath out on these guys. Joseph's response, weeping, tender-hearted forgiveness, and now going to bless them and their children for the rest of their days. Now, you see in the gospel in this text yet? You're not Joseph, by the way. I'm not Joseph. We're the brothers. It's interesting that you can read Old Testament narrative and you can come away going, man, I want to be just like Joseph. Too bad. <clears throat> you can't. You're not. Now, I'm not saying there aren't... Um, some practical life lessons we can learn from biblical characters. Absolutely. But what I'm saying is, in the meta-narrative, in the, in the storyline of your Bible, you're not Joseph. You're the brothers. You're the ones deserving of the wrath of Joseph. So am I. And you're the one who has received the best the land can offer, quote-unquote, in reference to what we've received through Jesus Christ. That Almighty God says, I will give my very, very best in order to redeem you. I will send forth my very son. Let's keep moving. <clears throat> Look at verse 7. Then Joseph brought his father. So the brothers have been brought before uh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh has given them the land. Pharaoh has said, if there's excellent men among you, um, I give you the land, and if there is excellent men, I want you to be in charge of others. Why did he only pick five out of all of them? I don't know. Um, I, I, in my reading and my research, I couldn't find anybody that does know. Uh, just why five were picked as perhaps an example of the brothers. Or you could work through that maybe there was five he trusted more. I think that would still be a difficult errand for anybody. Um, but it, what we do know from the text is he picks five out of the brothers to present before Pharaoh. Pharaoh gives them a glorious opportunity, gives them the job, 
And all again because of the blessedness of being connected to Joseph. Now look at 7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and stood him before Pharaoh. Now this is interesting. Pharaoh doesn't bless Jacob. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. So you picture this, the old patriarch, right? There's Jacob. Think about this, you guys. Just This is what's so cool about walking through a narrative together is you've been with me, going week in, week out, seeing all that this man's endured. Everything that, that, that Jacob has gone through. And this old guy now, 130 years old, walks in front of the highest power in the land. And it doesn't say in the text, and I don't want to read into the text, I just, there's my thinking that thinks that Jacob does not stand before this Pharaoh cowardly or cowering. Jacob has stood before the face of the living God, so the face of Pharaoh, not that impressive. And so as Jacob stands before him, we're told Jacob blesses Pharaoh. What exactly did he say? Did he call a blessing from the Lord onto, onto Pharaoh? I don't know, and it's not exactly recorded just what he communicated in blessing Pharaoh. But we're told that Jacob, in that moment, before the living God and before the highest authority in the land, Jacob wanted to call a blessing onto this man. Felt that he had the opportunity and could speak that forth to him. Jacob is the gnarly, old, salty patriarch of his people, prepared to die any time. Remember this, you guys. He's standing in front of Pharaoh, right off, on, uh, right off the heels of the most glorious reunion of his entire life, so that his reaction to Joseph was, I can die now. Sometimes we'll do that, right? Something wonderful happens, and we go, I can die a happy man. Well, that's what he's saying there. When he holds Joseph, he's saying, okay, Lord, take me whenever you want. I had no idea you would bless me in such a way. This has been wonderful. And then he stands before Pharaoh. Big deal. <laughs> because I have just received my son from the dead. So he stands before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asks how old Jacob is. I would guess out of curiosity, out of respect, um, and just gauging where this man is. Would you notice the way Jacob describes his life? Look, look down at your Bibles. Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning. Your translation may say pilgrimage. But the concept in what his language is there is, I'm on the move. A sojourner is not somebody who, who makes his home. A sojourner is one who is on the move. One who is consistently moving towards another place. And if you track the life of Jacob, he is a man who is definitely, fairly consistently, in big blocks, on the move. And again, here he is in Egypt, on the move. He flees Esau, goes to Laban. Flees Laban, goes back, and he's with Esau. 
seeking to follow and come into the land of Canaan. And now here he is in Egypt with all that he's owned at 130 years old. Can you imagine moving at 130 years old? I mean moving from like a house, not like moving, moving. <clears throat> but at 130 years old, man, that's the biggest U-Haul I've ever seen. We got to fill it and we got to go. And so on that, on that way, he again goes. And so his language is the language of the days of my sojourning, the days of my pilgrimage. Turn to Hebrews 11.13. We're going right back to Genesis, so keep a, a hand there. But Hebrews 11.13. This is what's so fantastic about an inerrant inspired word of God is that no ink wasted. All of it has importance. And so even that word used in that text means something. And listen to what we're told by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews eleven thirteen, In reference to the patriarchs at this time, verse 13 says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire to a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only son, to whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. And it goes on further in reference to the faith, but I'll, I'll stop there simply to point out that when he says the days of my sojourning, the days of my pilgrimage, the days in which I have been traveling, I believe points to what we see there in Hebrews 11, that he's looking for a greater home, just as Abraham was, just as Isaac was, and now Jacob, I believe, is as well. And so the, it would be kind of interesting if somebody said, so Dan, how old are you? Well, the days of my sojourning. Because Peter picks this up also in the New Testament and makes reference to you being aliens and strangers in this foreign land. Earth. <clears throat> this isn't your home. You're passing through. You're visiting. And here's the challenge, beloved, to all of us. How many, how many hours a day do we act and think as if this is where we're staying. You are a stranger. You're an alien. You're a pilgrim. You're a sojourner on this life. You're only here for what the Bible calls a mist. Then he calls you home. Calls you home. Heaven is home. That's where your citizenship lies. And so I think, what a, what a fantastic way for Jacob to reiterate, his, to, to give his response back to Pharaoh, the days of my pilgrimage, the days of my sojourning are 130. But he goes on further. 
Look at how else he describes it. <clears throat> Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. Now, <laughs> imagine if you sat down with a 130-year-old individual and you said, tell me about your life. Few and evil. Few? 38-year-old? <laughs> 130-year-old? Few? Really? But he's looking at it in light of those who've come before him. Um, oh, where did I write down that number? Abraham lived 175 years. Isaac lived 180 years. He's been alive for 130 years. And so in light of that, his response is, few. Now, he's going to live more years after this, more than he probably thinks he will at this time when he's speaking this way. But I don't want to focus so much on the few. I want to focus on the evil. Guys, do you know how many times we have been walking through and seen God pour his grace on Jacob? over and over and over again. How many times God in his infinite mercy came to Jacob, specific revelation. So the creator of the universe, the one who knows all things and power of all things, the sovereign of it all, goes down to this tiny little old man and speaks directly to him with specific revelation, where he knows the thoughts, he knows where every grain of sand lies at that moment, and he pursues this little Jacob. That's grace. That's insane grace of God. But Jacob says, my days are few and evil. Well, let me remind you of a few things that Jacob's endured and inflicted. Remember his evil actions towards his brother Esau. Remember the bowl of soup? I'll give it to you, but I want the birthright. Okay, whatever. I don't care, man. I'm hungry. Okay, so he sells it. His lying and deception of his father Isaac. His mother says, I want you to put the, the hair on your arms. I want you to wear your brother's clothes. I want you to go and I want you to deceive your father. Lie to him. Lie to his face and you get it. He lied to and deceived, uh, was lied to and was deceived by his uncle Laban. In the most, in one of the most, intimate relationships of his life, Laban tricks him. Seven years of labor, works his tail off, and he's given Leah as a trick. And then another seven years for Rachel. Laban just uses and abuses him over and over and over again. There's infighting in his family, pretty consistently between he and his brothers until he leaves. There's infighting in his family between his wives. Remember that whole passage where they're passing mandrakes between each other so that way somebody gets to be with Jacob so that way they can have a child by Jacob? Remember that weird one we covered? And they're fighting with each other. They're angry with each other. Then they take their, 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 their maidens and they, they use them to get children through Jacob. Remember the rape of his daughter Dinah? We covered that from this pulpit. One of the greatest piercings of his heart, the loss of Joseph. Lied to and deceived by his own boys. The death of his beloved wife, Rachel, 
puts her in the ground and weeps over that, over her. The stress over the famine, we're all in for it. I've got all these children and grandchildren, and this famine is so severe, we're done for. And the stress over all the issues concerning his son's trips to Egypt. If you sit down and pile on all that Jacob's endured, it makes some sense his response to Pharaoh is, my days are short and they are evil. There has been so much trauma in our household. But, and here's the the big change, but God is good. How do I know that's what Jacob thinks? Because Jacob calls a blessing from God onto Pharaoh at the beginning of the meeting and after the meeting. When Jacob saw Joseph, his response is, now I can die. Not die and go away from you, Lord, but now, Lord, I want to be with you. I want to go in your presence. Jacob is not a man who has has walked away from the Lord. He's a man who has profoundly taken great hits but still walked with the Lord. And God has been beyond tender with this guy. Beyond tender with this man. And so when I think of all of the emotional scars this guy carries in as he walks before Pharaoh, it's so interesting to me when you go all the way back to the start of the movie and you see this Jacob who is quick to lie and deceive to get his way. And God in his grace, just as the psalmist said, God was faithful to afflict him. Psalm 119, he was faithful to afflict him. God in his grace has been in work in Jacob his entire life. Are the days short and evil? Yes. Is God's grace abundant throughout all of it? Absolutely, and you can argue that from the storyline. No ink wasted. Perhaps, beloved, this was the only time Jacob ever appeared before Pharaoh. We don't know if he came before him again or not. But this old sage again calls a blessing on the king and walks out of his presence. Let me remind you, if you forgot, limping out of his presence. Remember this is the man that wrestled with the Lord? Leg put out a joint as a reminder for the rest of his days? See, I've wrestled with God, so I'm not too concerned about Pharaoh, so I'll call a blessing on you and limp out of your presence. Because my Lord has been faithful to afflict me for his glory and for my good. Look at verse 11. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. Now listen to how the cup is starting to run over. In the best of the land, and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. This land will most likely be called, will be called Ramses later, and so the author, as he writes this, refers to it as the name of it at that time when the author was writing this. It wouldn't have been called that at the time in which the land was given to him. And Joseph provided, please notice the language, beloved, not Pharaoh, Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, and I love this, according to their little ones. The grocery bill. Everybody keeps telling me, your grocery bill must be out of sight. My answer, 
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's just, it just gets more. I grew up in a household, there's five of us kids, and we were all teenagers pretty much together. Um, fantastic how much food a 16-year-old male can eat. And so according to their children, Joseph distributes out. Do you see the tender kindness Joseph has for his family? Not only am I not going to hurt you, I'm going to be the liaison for you. I'm going to get the king's blessing on you. I'm going to see to it you get the very best of the land. I'm going to see to it that you have a good job. I'm going to see to it that you have actual care over others. I'm going to see to it that your children, their tummies are full, they're cared for, they're taken care of. I am going to pour out love on my severe enemies of the past. And so the food was distributed according to the needs of the children, and the brothers were cared for by the brother they sought to kill. Now, beloved, what, what astounds me is not that Joseph forgave him, forgave them. What astounds me is Joseph forgave them and then bent over backwards to bless them and show his love for them, in spite of all that's taken place. Who could have dreamt this up? Well, Joseph, for one, right? We're told that he had those dreams where his father and mother, the moon and the stars and, and the sun, they bow down before him. The sheaves, they bow down before him. All of that has completely come true. And now they are before Joseph. We are called to give grace to our enemies in light of receiving God's great grace ourselves. That's a call on your life, and it's a call on my life. Joseph has, gone beyond, has been beyond gracious to his family in providing for them. He apparently holds no grudge, and he will not let past sins against him dictate his future actions towards them. He will not let past sins against him dictate his actions towards them. Talk about a New Testament principle. Joseph has truly been gripped by the incredible kindness of God. Let me, let me just remind you, um, look at Genesis 42 real quick, you guys, as a kind of close here. Genesis 42, verse 50. No, that's not right. I wrote that down wrong. Well, that's okay. It happens. Um, it's an inerrant, infallible word and a very fallible preacher. <clears throat> um, what I was going to take you to was where he names his sons. And the names of his sons are a testimony to the fact that he has forgotten what lies behind and he recognizes the powerful grace of God. Joseph's great faith and gratitude is clearly seen in his, and here's my word, supernatural love and care for his brothers. The supernatural response. Remember, this sermon started with the natural response. This is the supernatural response. That supernatural response is because God is alive, is alive in Joseph, has built Joseph up, has taken care of Joseph, and now Joseph's response to his brothers, who am I to withhold grace from you? The astoundment of seeing God's grace in his life has led in him pouring out grace to his brothers. 
Very easy application for every last one of us. Who is Dan Mason to ever think that I have the opportunity or the ability to withhold grace for others when I have received insane grace, just unbelievable grace of Almighty God? Did you know, by nature, I hate God? It's what the Word says. By nature, I'm a backbiter. By nature, I hate God. By nature, there's no fear of God in me. But by the supernatural work of regeneration, God has made me alive and spiritually capable to love Him. Who am I to ever withhold grace and mercy in light of all that I have received from God through Christ? And I'll just give you the text. You don't have to turn there. Matthew 18, 21 to 35, a classic text where the servant is forgiven a ginormous amount by the king. And then the servant goes to another servant that owes him a little bit. And we're told he actually chokes the other servant, beats him, saying, pay, pay, pay. And it's one of those kinds of stories that gets your blood boiling because you go, how dare that guy? Can you believe that? The king forgives him this huge amount, and then he won't forgive this little tiny pittance to the other slave. You're both slaves. Stop. Come on. And yet, beloved, how quickly can we withhold grace, walk in judgment after we've received so much grace and not the judgment of God? And so when we look at this and go, how on earth could Joseph respond like that to his kin? Because that man tasted redeeming grace. That man has tasted the undeserved, glorious favor of the Sovereign One. And in light of that, who is Joseph to withhold his mercy, his grace, towards his brothers? Father, I thank you for your holy word. Lord, I want to lift up PCBC this morning. And my prayer this morning, God, for my, for my own heart and for my church family God, would you remind us afresh this morning that we're standing on grace? We are not standing before you on works. We're not standing before you on things that we've done, the fact that we came to church and we don't say certain things and we say other certain things. And Father, we stand before you because of the spilt blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the only, the absolute only means by which we can approach you, Father, is the means of Jesus. And I, I am so, so very grateful to you, Father, not only that you have saved us, but now you have lavishly poured out your grace and love on us. Lord, I, I do not stand on my merit before you this morning by any stretch. I have the righteousness of Christ. And in, in Him, and in Him alone, I rest my hope. 
So, Lord, thank you for the, again, the supernatural, sweet refreshment of the gospel. Lord, this is the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us glory in it as we come to your table. Father, as we drink from the cup and take this little piece of bread and digest it, Lord, this is given by way of reminder, not because we've forgotten, but Lord, we want to take a time where everything stops. And we just put a pause on all things, Father, to stop in remembrance of you and to glory in the salvation that is ours because of your Son. Father, if there be anybody with us this morning that does not know where they are at with you, I pray that these, these questions would not just be ones to ignore and hide from, Lord, but you would cause them to ask, where are they in reference to you? Lord, may they abstain from coming to your table today and go directly into your presence right now and confess Lay their lives before you, Lord. You only receive perfection. None of us have it. And so you've provided an absolute perfect sacrifice to take the penalty of our sin in Jesus Christ. So Lord, let us glory in him. And not ourselves. And I pray for your blessing, Father, as we come to your table now in Jesus' name. Amen.